Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for you. We enter into your gates with thanksgiving. We enter into your courts with praise because you are so good. Your mercy endures forever and your joy, your joy is everlasting. As we listen to your words, Heavenly Father, not mine, may you bind them to our hearts, shine light on those parts of our lives with strings that need to be cut so that we are free to love you. Amen. So Sergio just read a very big chunk of Mark. We're gonna zero in just a little bit on Mark 1, 6, 1 through 6. There's a lot of things that Mark is revealing about Jesus and about God. And this is one of those stories that gets right to the heart of it. So as many of you know, I went away for high school when I was 14 years old. Um, it was a very formative, formative experience in my life. It grew me in many ways to the person that I am today. But the first three months of being at that school were really challenging. Now, during that time, there's a protocol that they take you through. If you've ever sent your kids to boarding school or maybe at a summer camp for a long period of time, they say, if you can get through the first two weeks, then you'll make it 30 days. And if you can get through the first 30 days, you'll make it three months. And if you can make it through three months, you're very likely to graduate. And so the parents are told, do not talk to your kids every day. Don't send them tons of letters. Help them detach so they can learn the language of the world they're in now. They can lean into their new relationships. They can start to become the person that they're going to become with us. So my mom did it. And if you were here for any sermons I've preached in the past about my mom, she did an excellent job of giving me space. <laughs> but today I want to talk to you about my first time returning home. Back to Cabrini Green back to Chicago, my inner city neighborhood. It was on Thanksgiving, I was on break, and it's one scene, 6 a.m. I'm about to catch the bus, and this older woman that I recognize a little bit, she comes walking up to me and she asks for directions. So I gave her directions, and then I just sort of noted that she walked away with a befuddled, like confused look on her face and kind of walked about halfway down the block and then she turned around and she said, are you okay? I said, y yeah, why? Well, you don't seem like you're from around here. And I'm a little worried about you being at this bus stop this early. You know, this neighborhood is kind of rough. You want to be careful. I said, oh, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. I'm actually, I'm from here. I live two blocks right, right down the street. She said, <laughs> no, you don't. I said, yeah, I do. She said, no, you don't. So then I proceeded to give her my building address. I told her some other things about Cabrini Green that you could not know if you didn't live in Cabrini Green. And then she said something that sort of woke me up to something. She said, how is this possible? You don't look like and you don't talk like or sound like anyone that was born here. You sound like somebody who shouldn't be here. Are you sure you're okay? <laughs> At this point, you know, my heart's starting to sink a little bit. I'm like, okay. 
I said, yes, ma'am, I'm, I'm okay. And the reality is I, I wasn't. You know, I realized that after three months of being away from home, away from the vernacular of the streets that I grew up on, being surrounded by kids from streets that were way beyond my street corner, my language pattern changed. The way I walked changed. The way I talked changed. But I didn't change. It was a challenging moment. And as this lady walked further down the street, just for good measure, she turned around and she yelled out, are you sure you're from here? <laughs> when I moved to Virginia in 2009, there was a song that came on the radio and this lyric has stuck with me to this day. And I, I don't know if it was Avid Brothers, I don't remember, I'd never heard the group before, but the lyric was this. It said, home is the place that we leave to go find the places that we will be from. Today's passage is short. It's just six verses, but don't let that fool you. I would love for you to open up this book and travel with me. There's a lot, a lot going on here. It's on page 841. It's six verses, but it features one critical scene. And this scene puts two sides of a coin against each other. Jesus as the king on one side of the coin and then Jesus as the carpenter on the other side of the corn. Mighty works versus mundane. Familiar versus offensive. And the question that Jesus leaves us to answer is this. What is it about God Almighty being a carpenter that we tend to find ourselves being offended by? It's a story in two acts. So act one, we'll call it the call. Jesus comes home with his disciples and he teaches in the synagogue. He broadcasts. Act two, then there's a response. The people respond to his teaching and Jesus responds to them. Let's start with act one, the call. Jesus comes home. Let's look at the verse, verse two. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So Jesus had gone to the synagogue to teach and according to the Greek that's used in this passage, and I'm not good at pronouncing Greek all the time, but ekpleso, the people are struck with astonishment. They are amazed, astounded. That's not a normal thing. We don't get astounded by everyday things, by familiar things. We're astounded by things that cause a seismic shift in our life or our awareness or our reality. And this is an important caveat that I wanna sit on for a minute. Jesus is exploding their reality by the things he's saying to them. Not by doing miracles, not by the miracles he had already done that they surely heard of. They are having their mind and their realities blown just by listening to him talk. Now in most places, especially in a small town like Nazareth, a city of about four or 500 people, you would think that Jesus coming home would receive, I don't know, a local hero's parade. He's gotta be the biggest thing that's ever come out of that town because he's the biggest thing that's ever come out of this world. You think they welcome him. Jesus is back, my best friend. 
We used to play hide and seek together. He stole tomatoes out of my yard. Jesus is back. But no, it's the opposite. These are not my words, so we're going to look at it together. Verse 3. This is what they did. They said, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. That word translates as scandalizo, or as we know it, scandalous. It was a scandal that Jesus would be speaking so well and so beyond himself that they might have to consider for a moment that he might actually be God. No, no. They were offended by the prospect that God could be so familiar. Which brings us to act two, the response. Friends, we're going to unpack a pretty powerful verse here and it's meant to be gut-wrenching. This phrase is also associated with John the Baptist who was beheaded. Let's take a look at verse four together, please. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. This should be a really hard thing as Christians for us to read and to think about the implications of what's happening here in this situation. Because we all have this idea this is what our series is about. That's what our vision nights are about. We're supposed to go and be faithful disciples of Christ, spreading the gospel two by two, not alone. The implication is that we would always have each other's back because eventually we will face hostility and we will suffer. That's very clear from those around us, those outside. That's not the people that Mark's talking about. Because it's not like they missed Jesus. Like, oh, oh my goodness, was that Jesus? I didn't, I didn't know it was Jesus. Nope. It's not like they misinterpreted what he was saying. It's not that they decided to just stay ignorant or to say, I'm just going to be indifferent and sit this one out. That's not what happened. It says right here that they took offense to him. They were offended by him. So I've been thinking a lot about Queen Elizabeth II been online looking at some pictures. It's actually pretty amazing stuff. It was beautiful. I looked at the coronation pictures, her wedding. And so I got to imagining. And imagine with me too. Imagine that you got an invitation when she was still alive to go to Buckingham Palace. And she wants to meet you there because you are the one person who, out of no work of your own, are going to be made an honorary citizen of the UK. And she wants to personally bring you into the kingdom. So you jump on a plane, you're super excited, and you drink too much water. So you get to the palace and you're like, ah, I gotta go to the loo. So you go to the loo, you run. Now you get to the bathroom and you try to go inside and there's a little sign on the outside that says bathroom cleaning and process. And you're like, come on, I gotta get to the throne room. And you hear this lady inside. You're like, come on. And you're waiting and you're waiting and you're like, this is ridiculous and a little bit offensive. She got to hurry up. So finally she comes out. She's holding a plunger in one hand. She's got those little sterile gloves on and a little, little coat. She's like, hello, how are you? You're like, I'm fine, how are you? And she's standing right in front of the door. You're like, hey, go to, you're like, what are you doing here? Want me, I'm here to, to see the queen. And she's like, oh, that's nice, that's nice. 
Well, okay, well, you have a good one. He's like, yeah, you, you too. You're kind of annoyed by the whole situation. But you get her out of your way, you go use the bathroom, and you run outside to try to find her, and now you can't find her. So you grab a guy in the hallway, and you say, hey, 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 where is the queen? And he says, huh, what do you mean? Say, where is the queen? Sorry, you were just talking to her. Okay. I didn't want to meet her like that. I wanted to see her in all the jewels. Nobody would want to see the queen like that. There's an element that I think is not just that they didn't expect Jesus. They did not want Jesus. We want the side of the coin that's mighty when we think about our God. We don't want the side of the coin that's mundane when we think about our God. Nobody wants Queen Elizabeth to be the toilet bowl washer. Man, we want the regalia. You want to go into the throne room, have her put on all the jewels and the crown and the scepter and just stand next to her because standing next to that much power, guess what? Doesn't that make you feel just a little bit more powerful? Just a little bit? When the people of God follow the way of the cross, their stories will begin to look like God's story. And that is just a beautiful image until you realize that to follow the cross comes at a very particular kind of cost. To be a servant, to be a king's servant. It means that if he's not having glory, guess what? You're not having glory. If he says we must take up our cross and die for this, guess what? You're taking up your cross and you're dying for this. And to be a servant is not probably what you think. It's way, way lower than you think. It's a servant of a no-name nobody from a no-name town, from a no-name family that's pretty unremarkable. And that is a carpenter and that is offensive. If we only want the majestic God to meet us in the ways that we want to be met on our Sunday best, given the things that we need to battle in our lives with sin, guys, we don't stand a chance. Isaiah 44, 13 says, the carpenter stretches out a line and he marks it out with a pencil and he shapes it with the planes and then he marks it with a compass and he shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. So, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters with us? And they took offense to him. Because yes, Jesus is the carpenter. And yes, you should be offended. That is Jesus' calling card. The gospel is offensive. It takes a long and moves with the sting of our sin, all the offense that we want to give him. He takes it. And regardless of where we want Jesus to go, he goes exactly where we need him to go. He is in our everyday lives, in your business. Not just the mountaintops, not just the valleys. And isn't that where we actually need him? Don't we need him? in those paltry processes of cleaning out the toilet. One more time. Don't we need him at the breakfast table, sanding those rough spots on our table? That's where we need the carpenter. 
We need him in the familiar spaces of our lives because brothers and sisters, in the familiar, in those mundane parts of our life, there lies our salvation. That brings us to act two, the response. We'll look at two sets of responses. The crowd's response to Jesus and then Jesus' response to them. And then we'll look at an additional response. Our response to Jesus and then his response to us. Let's look at the crowd's response. So the people in the crowd either respond to Jesus and his mighty works with faith, meaning they choose to follow him, or they're just skeptical, as many in his hometown were doing. Their two big responses focus on who Jesus used to be or who they thought he was. The chief priests, the scribes, their response was to seek to destroy Jesus quickly amid his growing ministry by discrediting him as a false prophet and convincing people not to follow him. Let's look at Jesus' response to all of that. Jesus' response is so interesting. Okay, verse 5 and 6. And he could do no mighty work here, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Jesus invites people to see him in his ministry. He's not trying to convince the unbelieving. He has nothing to prove, not to us. He's being who he is. And we can see him for who he is, or we can choose to not see him for who he is and come when we're ready. And Jesus will just keep on doing what God called him to do. He will broadcast that seed that Sam talked about last week, and he will let that fall on the soil. What happens at that point is always our choice. We're not Jesus, but we can follow his example. We don't have to convince everybody or prove anything. We're here to be who God made us to be and to do what he called us to do. And if you're here and you're curious about Jesus today or exploring what our faith is all about, or if you are in a dry season of your faith, we can also rest that that invitation, the nature of how Jesus works, we're just invited to see. The psalmist says in 34th Psalm, taste and see that the Lord is good. Just give it a little taste. And we can trust that he will reveal himself to us according to his perfect timing in our individual lives. Now, these verses tell us a lot about us. We've looked at our prone, just overly prone abilities to be offended by the gospel and by Jesus, which causes us to be, as Sam said last week, unable to see him when he's standing in front of our face. It causes us to conceal the word from ourselves. But these verses also tell us something about God. Let's think about those two sides of the coin again for a moment. So we've got Christ the mighty, okay? He's on one side, and then that carpenter is low. And I want you to go all the way down to the floor. Like he is down on the ground. Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. 
for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the unimpressive, pathetic areas of our lives and when we often think he meets us in the worthy, most marvelous parts of our lives, we need him. We need him in the other part. We need someone who's not afraid to get their hands dirty. He's not afraid or intimidated by our shame or our sin. He doesn't want to wait until you've got it all together, all fixed up, and then you come to him. No, no. We need him to meet us at our lowest point when we're at our most broken, when we're at our most ashamed because when we need someone who knows what it's like, we want the carpenter. Someone who knows what it's like to have their hands covered in blood and calluses and gnarled, who gets in there, who knows how to work the hardwood. Someone who knows how much it hurts to fall down on your face and scrape your knees on the floor. Someone who's been there so many times that he knows how to get you back up and collect those pieces. And this thing I just said, that is revealed here, that is what makes Christianity. This is what differentiates Christianity from every other major religion. Our God is a carpenter. He gets in there. He's walking with you. And he's God Almighty. He is both of those things at the same time. So the Apostle John is with Jesus in Nazareth. And in Revelation 1, 16 to 17, he points out something really interesting that he sees in his vision of the end times. It's Jesus. He says, in his right hand, he held seven stars. Think about how mighty your hand has to be to hold up seven stars, seven galaxies. And then he goes on to say, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But then he takes his right hand and puts it on me and says, fear not. Friends, that is a carpenter's hand because he's holding seven stars in the same hand and he takes the same right hand and somehow transitions it to a very detailed touch on his child and says, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forever and I have the keys of death and Haiti. We need a God worthy to be worshiped and we need a God who will come find the worthless and the lowly points of our lives and rescue us. And that's who Mark is beginning to show us now. It's a very great privilege of the Christian life that through Jesus Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. We pray to the Father. We can have access to him because of his sin-bearing death. And Jesus opens that way. And this is offensive to some because Jesus goes into places where the sinners are. He eats with them. He hangs with them. And if we don't understand that we're all sinners and we need him to get down and be with us, then we don't understand the gospel. And this brings me to some points of application and then we'll close. We talked about the crowd. We talked about Jesus. 
And we talked about the people in the synagogue. There is another group of people that are there in this scene, the disciples. So if you look at me really quickly back at verse one, it says he went away from there and he came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. There's a point of application for those that were just watching him, his disciples, who were looking at his every move. And it's the exact point of application that we have as well. It's the same one in 28 AD and the same one in 2022. And this is it. The father who is both the carpenter and God almighty is working in us and he's working around us. It's very simple. Now these disciples, they're the new community. They're watching Jesus very closely. Now, when I study what it means to follow a rabbi, it means you are with that rabbi every single second of every day. You're counting the way he's breathing, his snores at night. You even go into the bathroom with the rabbi. You don't want to miss a single word. You're writing it all down. It's all, they're watching Jesus like a hawk. And this is good for them. And Sam's going to preach about this in a few weeks, so I won't take any of his thunder. I think John's going to preach a little bit on it too. But there's a, a lesson that they are learning right now that's really invaluable. Because these disciples are continuing to want Jesus to be impressive. When he talks about dying, they're like, nope, nope, not part of the plan. When he talks about being a lowly servant, nope. When he washes your feet, don't wash my feet. Come on, I need you to be impressive so I can stand, I can stand next to you. Come on, don't you know how this works? They had to learn it the hard way and that's the nub. But they learned it. And I suspect this situation is hard as it was, was a turning point for them. So these disciples are the ones that went to plant a church in Corinth. And there's a little note in Corinth that tells you about the lesson that they learned right here. If you go to 1 Corinthians 26, 28, you'll see what they learned from walking with this carpenter. He said, for considering your calling brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards and not many were powerful. Mm, not many were of noble birth. God chose you, what is foolish in the world, to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing to things that are. Jesus is saying, don't be surprised or offended. In fact, expect me to choose the foolish and weak things. That's the antidote of us not trusting how God works when we don't understand what we're looking at. He wants us to anticipate that he might be working in much more mundane ways and ordinary ways that we don't see. And those ways are important. And for us, as Peter said in his letter, those who are standing on the shoulders of giants, this book right here, this book that we learn from, that we go through, it is chock full of stories of people who were overlooked. David, Esther, Moses. They did not on their own and should not, according to natural made laws, be able to do any of the things that they did, but God made them to do that. When we understand that the carpenter is also God, it shapes how we think of our own Christ-likeness in our own lives. 
It helps us to have the right expectations of how God is at work in our midst. It says that we are in the mundane, the same people that we are on Sunday. We must be. And it's really easy to assume that God will just use powerful systems and people to bring about his will, especially in DC. It's everywhere. But Jesus tells us that that's not necessarily the case. The lowly carpenter may work in a different way that's not unexpected. And we shouldn't be surprised or offended by that at all. It doesn't mean he won't use those systems. It just means that we can't look for how God is going to work only in spectacular events and then take offense because he chooses to work with a carpenter and not Caesar. Jesus is both the carpenter and he's God. He's the one who speaks to trees and he brings them into existence in Genesis 1. And then he is the one that comes down to earth, takes about a thousand steps for every single one step we take, goes to a little town and learns how to whittle wood. He could snap his finger and make a table, but he decides that he wants to get down with there with us in the grain and whittle wood. And so we should not make the mistake that mundane things are not God working in our lives. He's sawing, he's whittling, and he's breaking timbers. God wants us to let him be who he is. Let him meet us exactly where he needs to meet us, not where we want him. Let him offend us. What are you doing here, God? This is not the right time. He wants us to let that happen, and we should. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your promise that he who has begun a good work in you, you will not stop until its completion. Amen.